Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. The Outpouring is a vibrant, Christ-centered church in sunny Orlando, Florida. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message by Pastor John Daniels. Amen. We're going to continue um, our series uh, this morning uh, called Better Together. And so if you have your Bible, I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 10, the book of Mark, Mark chapter 10. Some of y'all feel real famous. Y'all was in the video. Y'all were, yeah. Yeah, about to be popping now. Cut that record that I always wanted to make. Mixtape coming out. All right. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. I challenged y'all to bring a Bible to church last week. Did I just do that in this service? Did I do the last service? Second, second service? Did I did it in the second service? Tell everybody to bring. We're going back. The Bible challenge. Not the Bow Wow challenge. The Bible challenge. So we're going to um, try to get people to get more acclimated and bring their Bible to church. Um, Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. When you're there, say amen. All right. It says this. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. Wow. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They answered him, allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, (laughs) you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? And they said, we are able. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those whom it has been prepared. When the ten disciples heard this, they began to uh, be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let us pray. Father, we thank you, God, today. We thank you for another wonderful opportunity to come into the house of the Lord, God. I pray that as we read and study this morning, uh, that we will be attentive to what you would say to us, God. That we would realize the message is not for our neighbor, but the message is for us, God. And so, Father, I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would touch and penetrate our hearts, God. That our minds would be renewed, that we would have a fresh perspective on what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray, God, that you would lead us not only to Christ-like uh, uh, transformation, God, um, in conformity, but I pray, God, that you would lead us to repentance, Father, that we would serve out of different posture, God, that our minds uh, would be changed, we would be radically transformed in the way we approach your church, your kingdom, and your people. And so, Father, today I pray as I preach, God, that Christ would be exalted, that he would be lifted up. Your word says that if I would draw, if you draw men, I If I would be lifted up, I would draw all men. And so, Father, I pray that you would draw us this morning, God. Draw us closer to you, God. Let us be changed. 
Fill us with your spirit this morning. Let us pay attention. Let us focus, God. Let us receive what you have to say. We pray this prayer in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Come on, put your hands together one more time before you take your seat this morning. You may be seated. Better together. The subtitle, Serve Together. Serve Together. Jesus and the disciples at this point are on their way up to Jerusalem where Jesus would eventually face crucifixion. And as Jesus and the disciples got closer to Jerusalem, Jesus became more open with the details of what was about to happen and how it, all, how it would all end. So right before verse 32, verse 35, Jesus gives his most detailed prediction of what would happen to him. Now, throughout Jesus' ministry, there were so many societal, religious, and cultural values and norms that Jesus turned upside down during his ministry. But the last accepted value of that day that he would revolutionize would center around this idea of serving. As Jesus was revealing to the disciples uh, that he was about to perform the ultimate act of, servant, of servanthood, at least two of his disciples showed that serving was the last thing that was on their mind. And so all the disciples and the people that were following Jesus are all excited as they're approaching the royal city, which is Jerusalem. And they assume that if Jesus is who he said he is and his kingdom is about to be established, then the king will have positions of honor and influence to hand out to those that are closest to him. And so in that day, positions of authority played a significant role in people's minds. And so the disciples, they perceive that the end is near, but their perception was all wrong. They have faith that Jesus is going to do what he said he was going to do. They believe that the kingdom is about to be set up, but their faith is misguided. They believe that Jesus is going to go into Jerusalem and triumph. They believe that. They believe that Jesus is going to accomplish the victory. He has been talking about the kingdom, and they know that if he establishes his own kingdom, that that means benefits for his followers, especially those that are closest to him. It is always the case that glory and honor overflows to those in positions of power, to those who are closest to them. And whenever someone comes into a position of power, they typically hook up those who are friends and family of them. And so, be it a president, a CEO, or a king, those closest to that person tend to scramble for those positions of power. And so you have these brothers, James and John, they come to Jesus with the most ridiculous request and statement that I've read in all my years of reading the Bible. I mean, they are very forward and audacious in what they say to Jesus. They approach Jesus with the prosperity gospel type of statement. They hit Jesus with the name it and claim it. And here's what they say. Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. I mean, I go to Jesus with requests all the time, but I ain't bold enough to just tell him to do whatever I ask him to do. They don't even say, Lord, your will be done. They just say, just do what we tell you to do. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do? And they're asking about glory and sitting at his right hand and his left hand. And James and John are showing a complete lack of awareness of what Jesus has been teaching them all along. This statement is completely opposite of what Jesus had just told them one chapter earlier when all the disciples were arguing with each other about who's the greatest amongst the disciples. And they're arguing who works the hardest, who's the greatest, who's his favorite. And Jesus has to step in and correct them then with this response. And he says if anyone will be first, he must be last of all and servant 
servant of all. But what we see here with James and John is that their personal agenda is overriding the mission of what Jesus came to do. It's undermining what they've been taught. And so here's the thing. I got some sympathy for James and John. I have some sympathy, some real sympathy with them. They're, they're probably accustomed to success and recognition because if you remember, these two are the first disciples that Jesus called. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus calls them while they are fishing. How do you know that they're accustomed to success, Pastor? How do you know that they're accustomed to recognition? Because it says that they left their father Zebedee and the hired servants, which means their family has a prosperous and a successful fishing business, so much so that they have employees that are working for them. So these guys don't come from nothing. They come from something, and they're bringing that same mentality when they follow Jesus into the kingdom. But you can't bring your past accomplishments into the kingdom and think it means something to Jesus. And so they had higher service. These dudes were used to access. But here's the thing. When you come into the kingdom of God, when you come into the, to the church, you need to check all of your arrogance, all of your accomplishments, all of your critical acclaim at the door. Because what will happen is it will hinder you from serving others that have not accomplished what you've accomplished. And so what happens for us, we tend to look at people through the lens of what we have accomplished. And that does us a disservice when we come into the church because we're supposed to count others more highly than we count ourselves. And so if you come in and you say, well, I did this for 10 years. I did this for 15 years. I got six master's degrees and a doctorate. You tend to think that your perspective is better than everybody else's perspective. And if you're not careful what can happen, because church is made of all people from all backgrounds and all walks of life and all levels of accomplishments, you can tend to look at people and when they don't accomplish what you've accomplished and they can't move the way you move and do what you do and have the skill set and the talent that you have and the accomplishments that you have, you tend to look at them with this mentality that they need to pull each, up, up, each, up, each other up by their bootstraps. But what if they don't have bootstraps? What if they don't have them? And so you can't bring that mentality into the church, into the kingdom of God, because at the foot of the cross, we're all on a level playing field, all on the level playing field. But what we see is their personal agenda is overriding the mission. There's another interesting thing at play here with James and John um, that's not obvious to the text. So in the band of disciples, there were three that were closest to Jesus. That was James, John, and my, my personal favorite, Peter. Peter is... Bold and he says crazy stuff and he does crazy stuff and Jesus has always got to correct Peter. And so Peter is the spokesperson for the group. He's the one that speaks up when they have a problem. He's the one that's bold enough to go to Jesus and approach him with the nonsense. He's the leader of the pack. But what had just happened a few verses before, in verse 31, Peter made this slick comment to Jesus and he was like, See, we left everything to follow you as if Jesus was supposed to be impressed by that. And he was supposed to get some sort of reward for that. And so Jesus had to correct him then. And he got rebuked in front of the rest of the disciples. And so these two brothers, James and John, who are, who are real biological brothers, they see this. And so they see their, their brother, their leader, get rebuked. But they don't see it and feel bad for Peter. And they don't see it and think, well, maybe we should straighten up our act as well. But what they see it is as an opportunity to take Peter's spot in the group. And so when Peter got corrected, here's what they're thinking. Oh, oh, he corrected Peter. His position must be up for grabs. And so they see this as an opportune time for, for them to take a chance 
to put themselves in the position of power and try to exclude Peter. And so verse 37, when they say, when we want to sit at your right hand and your left hand, there's some significance there. Because when you think of a royal throne, you think of the throne, but you think of seats at the right and at the left. And these brothers figure, if we get Peter out of the way, that's one seat for you, and that's one seat for me. And these guys are as conniving as they've ever been. Because when somebody else falls off, they don't feel the compassion for Peter, but they turn into opportunists. Be mindful. When you desire a position at your job or in church, that you don't rejoice over somebody else's downfall and see that as an opportunity for your come up. But because this is the, because this is the, um, the 9 o'clock service, I'm not going to talk about the thirst trap that I'm going to talk about in the 11 a.m. service. So if you want to hear that, you just have to stay to the next service. And so this is a warning for all the people who want to work your way into a position at any, at any cost or by any means necessary. Here's what this is. This is my favorite proverb in all the book of Proverbs. Here's my favorite proverb. Proverbs 20, 20, uh, Proverbs 25, verses 6 through 7. Here's what it says. It says, don't work yourself into the spotlight. Don't push your way into the place of prominence. It's better to be promoted to a place of honor than face humiliation by being demoted. There's an unspoken protocol in the royal court. And that means you don't ask for a seat at the table. The regular version, the ESV says, don't ask, but let them tell you to come up to the table, but don't ask to come up to the table. I am so, I am so mindful of people who are always thirsty and jockeying for positions. Why do you want to be so, why do you want to be in that position? Why do you want to come up so bad? What is in it for you? I have to be mindful of people who are always seeking the next best thing. And so... If you overreach, if you overreach, you want to be one of the cool kids, here's what can happen. It can eventually lead to humiliation. It's better to start out and be humble and then be exalted than to work your way up and then get humiliated when everybody sees that you can't cast a check, that your mouth has been writing. I've seen too many people work their way up to a position. They, they network their way up. They smooth their way up. They shake hands their way up. They grease people's paws with money on the way up. And then when they get in the position of power, we realize how incompetent they are. So that's why if you're going to get to a place, let it be somewhere that God pulled you up to. Because if God put you there, that means that you're capable to stay there. But if you put yourself in the position, you run the risk of being humiliated and everybody will see that the emperor has no clothes on. And so, that's why motives matter. Motives matter. Wrong motives lead to painful disappointment. You'll end up biting off more than you can chew and everybody will see it. So, here's what Jesus says to them. Let us sit in the glory. And Jesus is like, you don't even know what you're asking me. The problem is, Jesus has been talking to them more about dying than about kingship. And they haven't grasped that his triumph, that his victory will not come like the Romans, but his victory will come through the cross. And so victory to Jesus means dying. It means dying to his flesh, dying to who he is. And so when Jesus is talking to them, 
they have selective hearing. They heard kingship and Messiah, but they ignored the cross language that he was speaking to them. And so Jesus talked to them about rejection and death, but like us sometimes, they only wanted to hear what they wanted to hear. And so this was a complete failure for them to understand everything that Jesus taught them. And this was not just some minor understanding, but this was an error at the heart of what it means to be a servant in the kingdom of God. And sometimes we just need to take God at his word. And sometimes we can hear something and we interpret it to mean what we want it to mean. As opposed to what God is saying, when God is saying something. And so sometimes you're like, man, what happened? And people are like, that's what... That's what God said. No, that's what he said, but that ain't what he meant. And that's, how, that's why you have to pray for discernment and pray that you understand God and that the Holy Spirit would reveal things to you because sometimes your flesh can be speaking so loud that you think it's the Holy Spirit when actually it's your flesh giving you what you desire. And we have to be careful. And so he was like, yo, okay, all right, you don't know what you're asking, but let me ask you a question. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm about to be baptized in? And they're thinking, because they are hearing what he says, but they don't know what he means. They're thinking he's talking about royal courts and thrones. But Jesus is talking about something completely different when he mentions cups and baptism. When he's talking about cup, he's talking about drinking the wrath that his father is going to pour out on him for the sins of the people. When he's talking about baptism, he ain't talking about renewing of the Jewish people. What he's saying is, I'm about to be plunged into death and judgment by my father. So his cup and his baptism is not about royal uh, thrones and seats. It's about the suffering that he's about to go through on the cross. And they don't understand that. And here's what their response is, because they heard what he said, but they didn't know what he meant. They respond and they say, we are able. Be careful when you respond and give somebody an answer without knowing what they mean. And they're like, we are able. Oftentimes, we want so bad to be in a place or position that we think we deserve or that we're capable of being in. But because we have not seen or understood what it actually takes to be there, we underestimate the price that has to be paid. So Jesus is like, yo, in order to share in my glory, you, you first got to share... Uh, uh, in my experiences, you, you have to share in, in, in my suffering. Are you willing to suffer? Are you, are you willing to, to forsake all that you know? Are you willing to leave uh, behind your comfort zone? Are you willing to die? Are you willing to die? Everybody believes that they are capable until they realize that they ain't capable. Case in point, this earlier this week, I went to the gym with one of the buff members of the church, and I thought because I work out three days a week and I run three miles a week that I was ready for prime time, and this joker got me working out my back. I get up the next morning, I can't even move my arms. But because I thought I could do something that I was doing on my own, I thought I could go to an advanced level when I wasn't ready to go to an advanced level. I should have sat down somewhere. I should have worked my way up. I should have got on that level first before I dived in there and got baptized in the soreness. But that's just like we are when we're jockeying for position or think that we can be somewhere that God didn't put us. And you end up getting sore in your real life and everything hurts. And you live your life in pain and in tears because you were lifting something that your body wasn't ready for you to start lifting yet. 
preach, Pastor. That's good. That's good. That's real good, Pastor. That's good. That's a good point right there, Pastor. Woo, I'm going to give Pastor an offering after this service. And here's why this is important. Because these same disciples, when Jesus got arrested in Gethsemane, these same disciples in Matthew 26, it says this, all the disciples left him and they fled. They left him hanging. The same ones that says, yes, we're able, when it got down to it, they were nowhere to be found. Lost. Gone. Couldn't find them. They fled. They ran when it got real. And so, even if you can handle something, he says this, you might be able to handle it. Here's the thing. But to sit at my right or my left is not mine for me to give you. Instead, it is for those of whom it has been prepared. And what he's saying is the glory we seek, the position we want, the acclaim that we desire has to come from God. In some areas, only God has the authority to put you in that position. And that's what he's trying to say to them. And Jesus is not denying that there are positions of authority and leadership and hierarchy. He's not denying that fact. They are necessary. There is ne- there is ne- there, it is necessary for there to be hierarchy and rank and people in position to direct and show people where to go and lead organizations and all of that. That is, that is a necessary thing for people to function right. That's necessary. But here's the thing. Those positions aren't always reserved for those that are the most ambitious or the most loyal. Can I tell you that? Status in the kingdom cannot be earned by loyalty or self-sacrifice. We think if we do this and we do that and we do this and we do that, it'll lead to the place that we think that we should be. That might work at your job. That might even work in your industry. That don't work in the kingdom of God. Sometimes God will promote the person that did the least. That's why your motives matter. Because if you go into it with the wrong motive, thinking that if you do X, Y, and Z, one, two, three, that you will get this, then you'll be disappointed and your heart will break. That's why your motives have to be pure. If I'm doing this, I'm doing it solely because I love Jesus and it's what he called me to. If I never get recognized, if I never get a thank you, if I never get a pat on the back, if I never get any, uh, any uh, recognition or acclaim, I'm doing it because I love Jesus. That's why motives matter. Motives matter. There's this thing in the investment world. When people would buy stocks, bonds, mutual funds, ETFs, they would buy these investment instruments. They come with something called a prospectus. You buy stock in Apple, you buy stock in uh, Google, or you buy some shares in uh, Target or whatever company, right? They're going to send you in the mail something called a prospectus with a whole bunch of jargon about what you just brought. And they're going to show you some charts over the last five to ten years about what this particular investment has done. So you can kind of get an idea. But there's something at the bottom of the prospectus that's in fine print that that everybody must read. Because if you don't read this, you'll be let down. And here's what it says. It's a very simple thing. It says past performance does not guarantee future results. That is to let you know Just because it worked for your neighbor that invested into it, that doesn't mean it's going to work for you. Just because it made money last year, don't mean it's going to make money this year. And so when you invest into it, when you put your your resources into it, 
There is no guarantee that you're going to get what happened to you last year or what happened to it last year. That's why we have to be careful when we put our heart and our energy and our effort into something. It does not always guarantee the results that we think that it should merit us. That's a real thing. And so there's another thing at play. But James and John, I, I think this is of note. This is not in my notes. But James and John have a mother. Their mother's name is Salome. And here's what it says in the same account in Matthew's gospel. <laughs> it's so funny. Here in Mark, they approach Jesus. Matthew's gospel says that their mother approached Jesus. And their mama, their mama said, yo, Jesus, we love you. But um, when you get into your glory, can, can my son sit at your right and your left? You got to realize something. Jesus' mother, Mary, has a sister. The Bible says that her sister's name is Salome. Most believe that this Salome is the same person that is Jesus' mother's sister. So if this is Jesus' mother's sister, then that, what does this make this to Jesus? This is his auntie. If that's his auntie, then what does that make James and John? Them are his first cousins. So they're trying to get a family hookup. Just because somebody's related to you does not mean that they owe you something. So please, when your family members come to you begging you for something, you are not obligated to give them what they ask for. So let me take that pressure off your shoulders and lay it at the cross. That's for free. So, all of this is happening. James and John are trifling, conniving. They miss the whole thing. And so, something interesting happens in verse 41. It said, when the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant at James and John. They were upset. They were mad. They were hot. We can't believe that he, they would approach Jesus like this and ask this ridiculous question and this ridiculous request. I can't believe what they just did. And when I'm looking at that, when you look at it with the naked eye, you kind of feel them. Yeah, you don't be asking, just walking up on Jesus, cornering Jesus all brolic and stuff, ice grilling Jesus, just asking him to do what you asked him to do. You don't do that. And I felt for them until I really read the text and studied it. They ain't mad at James and John because they asked. They mad at James and John because James and John asked first. They're, at, they're mad because they got beat to the punch. And what it reveals is that the heart of all the disciples were in the wrong place. Jesus is telling them, I'm about to die on the cross, and all they can think about is positions of power. They have their own selfish ambition overriding Jesus' mission and what he called them to do. And we have to be careful that we always check our motives when we're about to do something. Impure motives should never go unchecked. When you get a job, when you come to a church, when you fill a role, when you do whatever you're doing, whatever the assignment is, at some point you have to ask yourself, why am I doing what I am doing? Because motives matter. Motives matter. So Jesus was like, I'm tired of this. I enough of this nonsense. So Jesus called all of them together for, for community rebuke. Oh, y'all, come here. Come here. Come here, everybody. Oh, y'all, sit down. Come here, everybody, sit down. And Jesus calls them. He's like, we're not like the, like the Gentiles. 
We don't exercise authority like them. He's talking about the Romans, the Roman government, because, like I said before, positions of leadership and power, they, they, people clamored for those things. That, that was a big deal in that culture. And so people then would use their leadership positions in the wrong manner. They would use their leadership positions as tyrants. And so they would end up abusing people, and they had a misuse of power. And we have to be careful when we get in positions of power that we don't misuse the power or the position that somebody has entrusted to us. We must treat everybody equal and treat everybody fairly. That means the person on the 22nd floor sitting in the corner office, or that means the janitor that's sweeping the floors. Everybody deserves to be treated the same. Everybody. The same thing happens in church. Just because I'm the pastor don't mean that I'm above going in that bathroom and picking up trash on the floor when I see it. That's everybody's responsibility. And so, it's like they, don't, they use their position to put them in advantage. And they use their positions for people to serve them, not for them to serve the people. Case in point, the government, whether you know it or not, we're not meant to serve the government. The government is in place, biblically speaking, the government is in place to serve the people. That's why people react the way they do when injustices are there because you're not supposed to be abusing us. You're supposed to be serving us and protecting us. At the root of government, God created government. It is his weapon. It is his weapon to keep honor and to serve and protect the people. That's why we have to be careful and pray for who gets into office so there won't be a misuse of power in the land in which we live in. That's real. So, being put in a position of leadership in the body, in the church, is about serving. Not about telling others what to do. Let me say that again. Let me say it in loud to people in the back that can't hear me. Being put in a position of leadership in the body is about serving, not about telling other people what to do. True biblical serving is about leading others by example, by serving them. That's what real, real leadership and service is. So, if you serve for your own reasons, if you serve for your own benefit, if you serve for your own popularity, you serve for your own gain, these are the wrong reasons. Serving to get noticed is the wrong reason to serve. If you don't serve because you can't have it your way, if you don't serve because you can't be in charge, if you don't serve because you have to follow rules, if you don't serve because you don't want to be accountable or corrected, if you don't serve because you can't commit, if you don't serve because you can't be committed to every job and social club or the church interferes with that, those are not legitimate reasons to serve. As a Christian, you are called to serve. That ain't something that's a suggestion. That's not an option for you as a believer. You are called to get off your behind and serve somebody. Let me say this. Serving is not about preferences. Serving is not about preferences. Most often when serving, especially in the local church, we don't dictate the terms under which we serve. And that's a problem for people. Would that really be service if you got to dictate how you served? Would that really be service? And with serving under the condition of having all my preferences met aid in my sanctification. Let me, let me run that back. Would serving under the condition of having all of my preferences met aid in my sanctification? What do you mean by that, Pastor? 
if I'm serving under my own conditions and preferences, I never have to be challenged. But when I'm serving under conditions that may not be my preferences, it aids in my sanctification. Here's why. That means I got to work with some people that I might not naturally get along with. I got to be patient with some people that my patience is running out for. I got to be kind to some people that I don't think deserves my kindness. I got to be compassionate with some people that I don't think deserve my compassion. I got to take money out of my pocket to help people that can't help themselves. I got to do stuff that makes me uncomfortable. Serving should aid in my sanctification. It should teach me patience. It should teach me compassion. It should teach, teach me love. And it should teach me long-suffering with other people. But if I always have my preferences, how am I growing in my relationship with God? And most people don't see serving as a part of your sanctification, but it is. Because you have to learn how to reel in your bad attitudes some Sundays. You have to learn how to reel in that laziness because if you're around a bunch of hard workers, you get exposed to being lazy when you don't step up to the plate. And so really your, your, your serving is exposing the areas of weakness in your life and it's helping you and standing you and making you sharper than you were before you started serving in the local church. You don't know how lazy you are until you have to wake up at 8 o'clock in the morning to be at the church to greet the people even though you had a bad night before. So serving should aid in your sanctification. And so when people don't serve because of their preferences, all that is is a sign of immaturity and a lack of biblical understanding of what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. Greatness comes through serving. Here's what he says in the last, two, last three verses. He says this. But it's not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what he's saying is this. Servitude is a permanent posture of the believer. Jesus himself is a servant. Serving is a permanent attitude of somebody that is a disciple. And so what the servant does is he submits his will to that of another person, to whoever he's serving. In our case, we are submitting ourselves to the will of God through our service, right? And so in the ancient world, there was nobody lower than a slave. And the slave's whole life had to be lived in service, and he couldn't take any credit or claim to anything that he got done on behalf of his master. And so... Here's what Mark says, and it summarizes Mark's whole gospel, verse 45, when he says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the clearest statement of why Jesus died. He died to be a ransom and to give his life for the many. And here's what the Son of Man is. He meant that he was the unique representation of the human race. He is not merely a human being. He is the human being. He's not only a man. He is the man. He is the man's man. He is the man of all men. Jesus is saying, I am the human of all humans, and I came not to be waited on, but I came to wait on other people. And so, here's what you need to know about serving. I got three points, and then we're out of here. Number one, serving in this text means to bring an advantage to somebody else. Number one, servants in the kingdom bring advantage to others by serving them. Your purpose in serving is to make somebody else's life better than your own. Your goal 
is to give them an advantage that they didn't have before. Serving is about giving advantage to other people. All right. Number two, service in the kingdom show others how to serve by showing off their service as an example. You want to show somebody else how to serve? Well, then you serve first. You be the person serving. And so all of this, this whole text about Jesus being the son of man goes back to Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 11, 10 through 12. Here's what it says. Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. Here's what it says. Still, it's what God had in mind all along to crush him with pain. The plan was that he give himself as an offering for sin so that he'd see life come from it. Life, life, and more life. And God's plan will deeply prosper through him. Out of that terrible travail of soul, he'll see that it's worth it and glad he did it. Through what he experienced, my righteous one, my servant will make many righteous ones as he himself carries the burden of their sins. Therefore, I'll reward him extravagantly, the best of everything, the highest honors, because he looked death in the face and didn't flinch, because he embraced the company of the lowest. He took on his shoulders the sin of the many. He took up the cause of all the black sheep. Wow. The suffering servant died for sinners and did for them what they couldn't bear for themselves. He did it by paying a ransom. Here's what a ransom is. Ransoms were paid to liberate and secure the freedom of those who could not pay their debts and were facing indentured servitude. It was the price paid to liberate a slave, a prisoner of war, or a condemned person. And by paying the price of a ransom, it cleaned the slate for that person. As sinners, we were slaves to sin and could not in any way, shape, or form break free from that. But Christ came down and paid the ransom, but he didn't pay it with financial remuneration. He paid it with his life, and dying was not a setback for Jesus. It was what he came to do. It wasn't a setback. It was what he came to do. And so his death offers the disciples a model to follow. The third thing, self-sacrificing service is service that put others above yourself. It puts others Above yourself. And so, when we think about the significance and the weight of what Jesus did, there ain't no room for quarrels in the church. There ain't no room for drama between believers. There ain't no room for, for selfish and hidden agendas. His servant, Jesus' servant, consisted of danger, persecution, abuse, injustice, temptation, fatigue, rejection, threat, frustration, betrayal, dishonor, tears, anger, sadness, abandonment, suffering to the point of death. And so my thing to this is to encourage everybody that's ever served your community or served your church or served your spouse or served your family. To everyone that shows up and serves, keep on serving. Keep serving. God is pleased with what you're doing. He died by serving because sometimes serving other folks means dying. Hmm. Dying to your preferences. Dying to your comfort. Dying to amenities. Dying to selfishness. Dying to arrogance. Dying to pride. And if you feel like waking up in the morning is too much for you and you feel tired or like you're about to die, I want to encourage you. If you feel like you're serving to the point of death, I want to encourage you. So did Jesus. But here's the good news. Three days after he died by serving you and I on the cross, the Father, through the Holy Spirit, raised him from the grave. And because Jesus was raised from the grave, that means that whatever has presented you from serving, whatever 
devil has stopped you from serving, self-inflicted or otherwise, you can get up and get to serving. If you serve, serve with your heart, serve without an agenda, serve without ambition, serve with commitment, serve because you love God, serve because you love his people, serve because he saved you. But whatever you do, serve somebody. Serve somebody. Serve somebody. It is better when we serve together. We hope you were blessed by the message today and would love to hear about how God is using this ministry in your life. You can connect with us online at OutscoringOrlando.com to share your story, request prayer, give financial support, or learn more about our ministry. We'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services if you're ever in the Orlando area. Thanks again for joining us today. Have a wonderful week.